Hello and welcome to the host, Nextin's exclusive podcast show, where we speak with some of the world's leading thinkers on topics that shape the world. Our guest for today is Paul Smith, founding member of Sustain Finance, a mission-driven, not-for-profit geared towards helping asset owners and managers integrate sustainability into their decision-making process. He also served as a president and the CEO of CFA Institute from 2015 to 2019, and having joined in 2012 as Managing Director for Asia-Pacific. Hello, Paul. Hi there. How are you? How are very you? Very well. Thank you. How are you? Very well. Very well. Wonderful. Lovely to be connected to you. I hope you're safe in Hong Kong. Are you back in Hong Kong? Uh, we are. We are in our quarantine hotel, just doing the last bit of quarantine. We've got another six days. Oh. Six more. That's quite a long period. I think uh, if, well, it was two weeks for you or three two weeks? weeks? Two weeks. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're over halfway. So all good. All okay. good. Excellent. And have you been based in Hong Kong for quite a few years? Uh, 25 years. Yeah. Wow. So a long time. So wow. no, it's, uh, it's, it's home for us. So it's good, good, to be, uh, good to be coming home. Anyways, Paul, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us today. Pleasure. You know, we'd love to hear your views on sustainability in finance and, you know, how, how can we bring this culture into education to make sure investment professionals for the future mm-hmm. are well-educated and can, you know, begin their careers having, you know, the, the principles of ESG into their professional lives as well. So just to begin with, it'll be wonderful if you could give us a background about yourself, uh, what you've been doing at Sustain Finance and the progress that you've made over the last couple of years. Okay. Well, I, I've been in investment one way or another for, oh, you know, almost 40 years, I suppose, as, a, as an investment manager, as a private client advisor, as a servicer, a, a custodian, securities um, administrator, as an entrepreneur in terms of having my own asset management business, and as a fund director as well. So that's Basically, my career has been in the investment world, primarily in the offshore investment world, the international investment world. Been very lucky in that I've been able to work out of London, which is where I'm from, Paris in France, Dublin in Ireland, New York for two stints, and for 20 odd years out of Hong Kong. So it's been a, an unusual career in that I've got North American, European, and Asian experience at sort of various different levels within the investment industry, within the finance industry. It's been, you know, a lot of fun, very varied, met a lot of exciting people, a lot of good people, made a few mistakes on the way, needless to say, but hopefully done one or two things right. Sustained finance, um, since I retired from my last role, which was as the president of the uh, CFA Institute, which is an educational organization, which which offers a credential for investment managers, primarily, it's probably the best known credential in the, in the financial world. Since I retired from there in 2019, late 2019, I've done a whole variety of things. But one of the, the projects that's most close to my heart is, is Sustained Finance, which is a not-for-profit that I started with a lady from Turkey called uh, Kubra Kuldemir and a gentleman from Singapore called Anand uh, Ramachandran. We put that together the best part of two years ago now to really sort of discuss the intersection between sustainability in its broadest sense and the investment world particularly. We felt that investment managers needed some some prompting, but also some hand-holding in terms of helping them 
entrench themselves into the sustainability conversation and obviously to integrate sustainability into their investment process. So what have we been doing? Uh, we've been writing and blogging. We've done a fair amount of that. Uh, if you go to our website, www.sustainfinance.org, org, not com, you'll see a variety of our, our writings there and also the, the videos of, of events we do. So typically we, we publish an article and then we hold a panel event around it with some uh, of our co-authors uh, but also with some interested parties from the the industry. And what we're trying to do is to sort of build up a platform, if you like. So we tend to generate the ideas for the articles, but then we try and bring expertise in. Most notably, Nuril Rabini has written a couple of articles with us, uh, who's obviously a very well-known name in the finance world, uh, but try and co-opt a couple of other people to broaden our skill sets and our knowledge set so that we can write intelligently around subjects that are of interest to the asset management world, the investment world, around sustainability in general. We look pretty good in retrospect in that we are, our timing has been pretty uh, perfect from that, which is unusual for me. Normally my timing is woeful, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but this particular initiative uh, obviously was launched really as the whole sustainability conversation, which has you know, been out there for the last decade, but the, but the last two years has really seen a dramatic pickup in global interest right across the map, not just in finance, but obviously in society in general and in lots of other spheres of the corporate world in, in this as a subject. So it's an exciting time. Uh, it, it's a difficult time, though, when you're running something like sustainfinance.org because uh, the number of voices out there are increasing all the time. It's hard to keep it fresh. It's hard to have a different point of view when so much is being written and, and discussed around this subject. So that's a good problem to have rather than a bad problem. Obviously, the, the whole idea is to push the investment world forward in sustainability. And that bandwagon is is really rolling, which is which is very exciting. Very interesting. And how receptive do you think have asset managers and investment managers been to you know implementing such measures in their process? And how is sustained finance helping in the implementation process, if I may ask so? Well, we don't we don't really get involved in the implementation. We're a, a think tank as opposed to an execution capability. Okay. So we don't have a an advisory arm or a consultancy arm that sits along this. We 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 really just confine ourselves to the think tank side of things. Maybe one day that'll be something that we add on, but it's certainly not on the cards at the moment. I think it's encouraging. I mean, I'm I'm you know very optimistic really, in that I think the asset management world over the last 10 years has moved an extraordinarily long way. I, I remember appearing on ESG panels back in the day, and it was like you'd come down from Mars, basically. No one really gave it much of a thought. It was on the fringe you know, almost the, the the lunatic fringe of finance, basically, 10 years ago. But it's now mainstream. And I think over the next two years, we'll stop talking about sustainability in ESG. It'll just be integrated. It'll just be part of asset management. And I think that's the way the asset management world is going, partly through regulation. You know, the EU particularly is pushing that forward. But I think more importantly, it's going that way because clients are demanding it. And obviously, as people such as myself get older and older and older, and <laughs> we drop out through a process of natural selection as clients, you know, the investment managers 
are more and more interested in making sure that their products and services are geared towards an ever more youthful congregation and um, that young people are passionately interested, quite rightly, in these subjects. And so, you know, client demand, a little bit of self-motivation from asset managers yeah. who feel that it's the right thing. I don't want to under underplay that. But also regulatory push means that the asset management industry has moved an enormously long way and it's not going back. I mean, that's it's gone beyond the point where there's going to be any backsliding as far as that's concerned. It's really now just about how do we improve transparency? How do we improve data? How do we make the process more cleaner from a greenwashing perspective? How do we measure and monitor what's going on in, in sustainability, not just at the asset management level, obviously, but at the corporate level, at the granular level? And that's that's where the conversation is now. Uh, you saw that at COP26 in, in Glasgow recently. And that's really, I think, where uh, regulators are going to play an enormous role over the next couple of years, pushing companies to create much better disclosure regimes for their sustainability framework. So what do you feel is currently uh, one of the largest factors that's resistance? Like, what's the resistance behind people not adopting it even quicker? Is there something well, that's stopping them? Is it, you know, just, is it is it not in their best in- interest do they not have enough incentives to adopt it? Uh, why do you think the adoption, of course, it's, it's been quicker this year, but why do you think, you know, what kind of restraint has been there in terms of adoption? I, I think that's a great question. And I think obviously, as always, there's never one answer. It's always a, a, a combination of things. But I think asset managers was, would say that their heart is in it, but it's difficult because the data isn't very clean and often non-existent. So when they're trying to distinguish, you know, take oil companies, for instance, when they're trying to distinguish between Shell and Exxon, it's not that easy, yeah, you know, which true. one, which one uh, you know, how to measure the environmental impact of an oil major when they are in operation in umpteen countries around the world. They've got downstream operations, they've got upstream operations. It's it's not that easy. And so I think asset managers feel that they are being pressured to run faster than they are able to run. Mm-hmm. And that that's why sometimes regulators and perhaps the public feel a little disappointed with their efforts, because often they'll try and do things, they're moving without perfect information. So they make mistakes. And so they get criticized for that. And at times, they are just unable to move. And they get criticized for that, because they don't want to make a mistake. So so I think they feel a little bit like they're the meat in the sandwich, and that this has to be a partnership between regulators, companies and asset managers. And at the moment, the conversation is too much around why doesn't finance, why doesn't the asset management world solve all of our problems, basically. Correct. And it, it simply cannot do that. It needs a framework to push investment dollars away from certain industries, but towards certain other industries. And, and that's that's not happening. And I, you know, but again, you know, I come back to what I said earlier. I'm I'm extremely positive when you when you, you know, the only advantage of old age is you do have a bit of perspective on these things. <laughs> when you when you look at where we've come from and the pace of change, it's accelerating mightily at the moment. And I think it's uh, we're in for a very, very exciting next couple of years. And I I, I give one sort of broad example of that is that 10 years ago, it was all about 
avoiding sins. You know, it was avoiding vice. It was avoiding tobacco stocks. It was avoiding gambling and things of that nature. That's what ESG was all about, the avoidance of bad things. And that was a necessary phase. But where we are today, which I think is tremendously exciting, is how we can invest, how can we invest in new technology? And that, you know, whether it's batteries, electric cars, wind farms, alternative energy, whatever else it happens to be. It's, and that, I think, is, has really been a paradigm shift in the whole conversation. It's moved away from exclusion towards investment opportunity. And that's meat and drink to the investment industry. So we need more opportunities. I think that's another issue. I mean, I was listening actually to an interview with uh, the head of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund today. And one of the things that he was saying was that it, it is actually hard to deploy a lot of money into this sector at the moment, just because there just aren't that many opportunities out there. And, you know, that needs a combination of government action as well as private action. The money is there, Mm -hmm. but it's not at this stage, it's not flowing as freely as we would all like it to do so. And it's not good enough for governments and supranational bodies just to point the finger at the investment world and say, it's your fault. It's not. It's a combination of challenges that we've all got to get together to solve. Very interesting. You also spoke, so we always talk about this framework and regulation plays a huge role in the framework that's been built, right? You mentioned that the European countries are actually taking, you know, uh, initiative in, in drafting these regulations. What about North America? What about Asia Pacific? So if you talk about Asia Pacific in, uh, you know, we focus on that region, what countries do you think are actually leading this in terms of regulation? Do you think the Singapore governments, the Hong Kong governments, uh, do you see any other countries in the APAC region actually taking an initiative on, on this front? Yes, I do. It's not very fashionable to say so, but China uh, <laughs> is, uh, is, okay. uh, is a country that has moved enormously in this direction. Obviously, it has a long, long way to go. And I think, you know, privately, the Chinese authorities would say that. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's not necessarily something that you talk publicly about. But um, but they have enormous challenges in China of an environmental nature, mm-hmm. as well as a developmental nature, which you have in all countries in Asia, frankly, is how do you match your desire to drive economic growth with your desire to be environmentally friendly? Those two things are still in opposition a little bit. Uh, or quite a lot, in fact. But China in its initiatives in terms of green finance, for instance, in terms of some of its electric car initiatives, uh, alternative energy initiatives, battery initiatives, uh, has invested billions of dollars in the coming technologies and is determined to play a leading role within those technologies. And I think that is tremendously exciting. It obviously has a lot of legacy businesses and a lot of legacy challenges that it needs to overcome. And it's incumbent upon the rest of us, really, to try to understand those challenges and to help China through them, rather than constantly be as critical as we traditionally are, particularly coming from a Western perspective of efforts that we consider in our sort of lofty towers to be inadequate, basically. You know, the other huge economy in Asia, obviously, is the Indian economy, one that you probably know a lot, lot better than I do. But, but, you know, India, I think, is in the same position. It's got a lot of desire 
to do better, but a huge amount of challenges uh, to overcome. And I think in the developing world, that's the frustration. They want to do better, but they need help from the first world to be able to accomplish that. But more importantly, I think they need runway and understanding because you can't just suddenly turn off, for instance, in India, you can't turn off coal mining overnight without creating enormous social dislocation and, and employment challenges and, and other economic challenges, quite apart from, you know, how's power going to get generated and all of those things. So so I think I think sometimes in the, the West has a very bland, one-eyed view of Asia's challenges. And I'd include Africa and Latin America in that, the emerging world's challenges in this, and hasn't really stepped up to its responsibilities in trying to help Asia grow to meet its people's expectations, but to grow in a way that's environmentally friendly. And I think that is a conversation that I am slightly depressed about. I don't think that's being had honestly enough, openly enough. But when I look around Asia, yes, the countries that you mentioned, Hong Kong, Singapore, Hong Kong, never does enough, frankly. Uh, It's better than some, but it could be a whole lot better. Why we're still allowed to drive around in petrol cars in an island where you you actually can't go anywhere and you can't travel for more than 15 miles in any one direction is a complete mystery to me. You know, these things are, are shocking, really. The pollution in Hong Kong from freight transportation by ship is appalling. That could be stopped through regulation if we wanted it to be. So so Hong Kong is a first world country operating under third world principles, basically. And I think it's a, it's a disgrace, our activities in that sphere. Singapore, I think, uh, does a pretty good job. China, as I say, is trying very hard and is impressive. Japan, as always, is the spots that it wants to be in is excellent, as is Australia. I mean, I know Australia has has got a a huge amount of criticism for a lot of its mining activities and, you know, with some justification. But anyone who's ever visited Australia knows that it's at the forefront of waste disposal, for instance, care of the environment. All of those things are, are really dear to Australia's heart and they do a fabulous job in many regards. So, so you know, I th- but I, th- I think that's the story, really. You can criticise everybody. That's true. <laughs> well, everyone has their flaws. Everyone has their flaws. What's, what's important is the direction of travel and whether people have sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, as they would yeah. say in America. And I think they have. Yeah. No, in terms of implementation, it's always more difficult right. to implement in terms of developing countries. And the West is, you know, it's easier to implement over there because... It's a developed nation, and most of it is always streamlined. That's a very interesting point. Paul, now I'm going to discuss a very interesting topic with you about how ESG and sustainability practices are being inculcated into the education system. You know, you've been the the president and CEO of the CFA Institute. In fact, I gave my CFA level one when you were in charge back in 2012. Successfully, Um, I yeah, successfully. <laughs> but then I changed directions and started my own company. Right. So, uh, so I didn't really complete my charter. I didn't get my charter off that. But I am a CFA level one. And I've completed that. Just in terms of, you know, getting such practices or even in theory, how do you yeah. believe an institute like the CFA or let's talk about how do you think an institute like the CFA can bring about change in terms of mentality of the class of people that are graduating from that course? We'd right. love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Well, I, I mean, I think the Institute has done a good job, definitely a pass mark as far as this is concerned. I mean, two ways. One is to, which we started doing, I think, five or six years ago, integrating elements of ESG into the curriculum. And so the basic concepts behind ESG, what is ESG, what are the ways, what are the many ways in which asset managers can integrate ESG thinking into their investment process, that started happening five years ago and has been increased incrementally ever since within the main body of the curriculum. And then two years ago, we launched a specific ESG learning certificate that was developed by the UK CFA Society and then taken over by the Institute about a year ago. And that's going extremely well. That's a that's really quite a heavy, not as heavy as the CFA exam, but quite a heavy certificate in terms of the knowledge that it is imparting upon you as an investment professional to extend yourself within the ESG world. And so that's a that's a qualification that I would urge anyone, any young person who's really interested at this stage in pushing their career in that direction to take that certificate now. And you can you can find out the details of that, obviously, on, on cfainstitute.org, which is, uh, which is their website. Just Google when you're on there, search for ESG certificate, and, and you'll find it. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head how many hours of study that is, but it's quite a detailed program. And I've seen a lot of and know uh, a number of people who've sat the qualification and they speak extremely highly of it. So, So that's what the Institute has done. Obviously, around that, it also holds... A whole series of events and, and virtual, obviously, over the last two years. So, mm-hmm. so very environmentally friendly as far as that's concerned. <laughs> <laughs> a whole series of virtual events and blogs and articles around around that subject. So, the institute is very much part of the new wave and the new thinking as far as finance is concerned. I, I didn't really answer you to one of your earlier questions. It has a challenge in that fifty percent of all charter holders come from the United States of America. And America does look at ESG slightly differently in the sense that it's a much more, the conversation in America is much more around return, whereas in Europe, and I think in parts of Asia, it's much more around what the point of finance is. You know, if, if finance isn't there to help improve the living conditions for us all and the lives of us all, then what is the point of finance? You know, that's a, that's a conversation that one can have in, in Europe, very definitely. That's a conversation that one can have in, in most of Asia, all of Africa, and all of Latin America. Because if you're in a developing country, you know, finance is a tool to help your country become a first world country. Yeah. It's not a tool to enrich a few people who've been to Ivy League schools. In America, finance is much more geared towards investment return mm-hmm. and less people think less i think obviously this is a gross generalization but but in general terms people think less about finance having a broader set of societal purposes yeah. and so the challenge for the cfa institute is that it's a global organization and so 50% of it is very very positive about the esg conversation 50% of it is is rather less so and it's a, a reflection of what you see at cop 26 and yeah. in these conversations in in general the world is not all on the same page as far as esg is concerned which is unfortunate but i think we'll all converge very so, soon and there will be you know some kind of you know stability in understanding and and stability in terms yeah. of the point i i hope so possibly yeah. in the next well, five years we we've just we've just written a a, a column on 
you know, the S in the ES and G, the social side of it. It wasn't authored by me. It was authored by a, a couple of my colleagues. And I thought it was very thought provoking because really what it was saying is this idea about the purpose of finance. Again, saying the S is actually the most important part because what is finance for? if it's not for society, really. And we haven't done, within the ESG conversation, we haven't done enough thinking around that S, really. Uh Because at the end of the day, finance is about individuals. It's about humans. It's about you and I and how we can construct a world that allows you, whatever your dreams happen to be, but allows you the framework, the, the, the foundation to be able to execute those dreams and for all the other seven and a half billion people that there are out there in the world. And we haven't thought really enough about that S side. Yeah, We need to, you know, obviously one has a horror of becoming almost religious in these things, and I don't mean it that way, but, but we need to think about finance in human terms. That's very difficult to do when, you know, a lot of the conversations around cryptocurrencies or artificial <laughs> intelligence or, or electronic trading, all of these things are the exciting things and certainly, you know, excite a lot of people who get into finance and they couldn't be further removed from the core purpose of finance. They're derivatives rather than the core. And I think times for young people coming into finance, they see all these glittery exciting things, but we don't anchor them enough in the ethics of finance and the purpose of finance. And the CFA Institute, as you will know, as a level one Parsi, does try and do that through its ethics. It does try and make sure that you at least give that some thought when you're plotting your career in finance. What what is the point? Very interesting. No, that's extremely interesting. And I hope uh, in the near future, we have a separate subject in the CFA, which covers just ESG, just like how ethics does. I think ethics is a fantastic subject to have. You know, it's something that people usually don't touch upon. It's something that people ignore because they don't think, hey, you know, that's that's important in finance. But I think that's the most important part of finance. Yeah. If you don't, would, yeah. If you don't get through the ethics part, I mean, the rest of it is it's not not as good. I always I always think it's very simple. You you just have to remember that it's not your money. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. And I think I think the way the way that a lot of finance works when you're in a big organization, you're pushing billions of dollars around. You don't ever see the client. You know, you could be operating at one or two stages removed from the client. It's hard for everybody to continuously remind themselves it's not your money. No, I think that's a very, very good point. So I would like to end by saying that it's your ethics, but it's not your money in terms of <laughs> in terms of managing it. So well, I think that's the mantra. Yeah, that's the mantra to go forward. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish you luck for the next six days in quarantine. Thank uh, you. I'm <laughs> looking hope, forward to I, it. Thank you so much. I hope you're productive and you get things done, even though you're locked in a hotel room. But stay safe. And I hope to keep in touch with you and, and, and meet you sometime when I'm in Hong Kong next. You too. Thank All you. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. Do feel free to browse through our library of podcasts and gain access to insights on a range of industries. If you would like to learn more about our services, please drop us a line on info at nextin.com. That is I-N-F-O at N-E-X-T-Y-N.com. Ciao.